Welcome to Brain and Avat. We have a really wonderful episode. Someone who is just an absolute gem in my life, my cousin Andy Cooper. And basically I figured, you know, Andy's going through a rough time. He's got this business. It's doing okay. They kind of manage about, we said two billion dollars worth of money to help 200 million people in, in, in deep impact investing. And Andy has this incredible story. Andy's the reason why I do philosophy. He studied at Cambridge. He studied under Marcia Sen. He wrote a fantastic book. He debated Peter Singer about um, how to alleviate poverty. And then he thought, you know what? Let me actually go and do it. Let me go and do something real in the world instead of pontificating in a, you know, the Bodleian Library or something. So it's an absolute pleasure to have Andy on the show. And I'm going to ask him to start with a true story. What a pleasure to be on with my, my amazing cousin, who I've been having philosophical dialogues with since he was probably 11. And even then, I found it difficult to rebut his arguments. Um, <laughs> so I guess I would start with one of my most failed development and life experiences, which was when I was a student in, in India in the 1990s. I went to try to get farmers to adopt drip irrigation in the middle of the Thar Desert in India. And to give you a sense, it's about 50, 55 degrees Celsius, and that's mostly at night as well. You see these farmers who work along the Indira Gandhi Canal that was built very badly, actually, such that the desert sometimes gets waterlogged and you get mosquitoes and disease and this enormous development project that was this giant multi-billion dollar canal causes a lot of ill health and poverty as well as bringing water and sometimes hope. So I was working with these farmers who are in this very difficult situation and if they adopted drip irrigation it was very clear the technology worked and they could lift their families out of poverty within two to three years. I thought this was a phenomenal idea. And I walked around saying, they're so irrational. Why don't they just do this? They're so irrational. And then I found out they could afford the financing to buy the equipment. It was an obviously rational purchase. They're so irrational, I walked around. And then I realized after a few months of this, after getting onto Larium, the, the anti-malaria medication that made me feel like I was walking through a haze all the time, that the, any new business, drip irrigation, anything else, probably has at least a 1 in 20 chance of failure. Some people think it has a 19 in 20 chance, but let's assume it's a 1 in 20. For them, that chance meant that your children would starve. So this foreigner was walking around telling them, I've got this great thing. Here, I want you to play Russian roulette with your kids. And I realized that the fundamental problem of development often is that people are unable to take worthwhile risks. And so even if the financing and the technology and the passion and confidence exists to start something, to do something new, to lift their own families out of poverty, they are rational not to take those risks. And I became quite obsessed with this idea. And many years later, as I saw and worked with the likes of Nobel laureate Muhammad Yunus or Faisal Abed, the founder of Brak, who together had served tens of millions of people in Bangladesh and helped lift 
the life expectancy of a country in a largely failed state by 20 years in one generation, right? Spoke, I looked at these cases and I thought, these are very powerful interventions with credit, but it's not going to be enough. There needs to be a suite of financial tools, a suite of things that enable people to take world worthwhile risks as agents of their own destiny. And, and that stuck with me. And if you think about the contrast between what I do and what is done in traditional development, a lot of it is about aid. A lot of it is about treating people as beneficiaries much more than agents. And this has hopefully shifted over time, but fundamentally at the root of my thinking is that notion of agency. So you've got these farmers and using traditional financing means they would have a one in 20 chance of failure. So you're playing Russian roulette with their families with one bullet and 20 chambers in the gun. How does, how does your model change that? So what I set out initially to do was to say, can we give these people the safety nets and springboards they need via commercial means? In other words, as I looked at this, I thought, well, there's insurance. For an insurer, a one in 20 bet is a very good one. They've, they've got enough capacity to not have to worry about the one bullet. And so let's try and bring micro insurance to very large numbers of people. And when I looked at what large numbers of people meant, I looked at companies like Grameen Bank or Grameen Telco or others and saw that they were hyperscalable compared to nonprofits and compared to development interventions. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that if you look at what is a lever long enough to move the world, <laughs> Bill Gates may have $60 billion in the foundation, but 4 billion poor people means that that's $15 a person. Even if he paid them a $2 wage a day, it'd be gone in a week. <laughs> so where do you turn for trillions of dollars? Well, it's the capital markets. The capital markets have tens of trillions of dollars exchange hands every day vastly exceeding charity. And while charity is uber important, don't get me wrong, if you're going to move the world, you need that long lever. But where does capital flow? Capital flows to where it can generate risk-adjusted returns. That's its job. That's the job of investors is to get good financial results for the people who entrust their money to them and not lose the money, so to take worthwhile risks. So what does that? Well, a nonprofit typically doesn't return any of the money. A for-profit company does, and it can return more of the money, and then the money can get recycled. So I thought, why don't I go out and back companies that are hyperscalable, that really reach large numbers of people, but where we can access huge amounts of investor money? And that's why we were the first to raise 100 million, the first to raise a billion, the first to get to 2 billion, to invest in purpose-driven companies, companies that serve low-income people who choose to buy things like insurance and choose to have savings products, choose to get pensions, choose to adopt drip irrigation, these sorts of notions on a big scale. And just to mention my most depressing moment or one of the most depressing in life was as I was riding on that train back into Delhi, 
from the Thar Desert. And I just saw millions and millions of people in severe shacks on the railway lines doing their morning ablutions without toilets. And I thought, what can we ever do that's at a scale big enough to really change all that? Well, today, LeapFrog on its own, our companies serve 5% of the world's low-income population from a standing start. And we've had hundreds of other managers spring up around us in the space called Impact Investing. And hopefully together, we collectively can mobilize trillions of dollars that actually do make a dent on the universe of poverty. Peter Singer has this famous thought experiment where he says, imagine you're walking down University Avenue and you see this small child playing by a pond and the child slips in and you could save the child from dying, but your shoes would get wet. Should you do it? And he says, obviously you should do that. Obviously you should make that small sacrifice to save this child. And he says, that is the situation we find ourselves in all the time, where you have people around the world who are suffering with immense poverty and that by making small sacrifices, we could help them. And this is his argument for why people ought to give to charity. And I think the point that you raised with Bill Gates is here's someone with an enormous amount of money and, and an enormous amount of will to help people and there is still only so much that you can do with charitable efforts. Can you tell us why it's important to go beyond charity? Why using the force of capital markets is important? And also, how do you deal with the sort of criticism that capitalism is necessarily a sinister practice, that capitalists only care about themselves, that they're necessarily anti-poor? You know, how do you square the circle where you say we can have profit and purpose together? I had a knockdown debate with Peter Singer, who I hugely admire, at Columbia in my 20s. And then we ended up writing a back and forth in a journal called Ethics and International Affairs that people still write to me about today. I think what is right about Singer's argument, and it's important to adopt the principle of charity, of course, as philosophers, is that a lot of what I and we do and ought to do is to recognize the humanity in the other and the obligations that creates on each of us to help others. And that sometimes the cost to us is so limited compared to the benefit to others that not to do so would arguably be morally problematic or indeed abhorrent. I endorse that. I think what is fundamentally wrong about the Singer argument is that it doesn't recognize that we are immersed in a dense fabric of social interaction that ultimately involves the close to 8 billion people on the planet and that economies are incredibly complex things. So if those in, say, the developed markets decided to give up all tourism and give up adopting uh, new clothes as opposed to used clothes uh, and other areas such as that and said, well, I'll just send this money to development agencies, It'd be an interesting experiment, but Typically, we found that what will happen is that critical sources of employment 
would absolutely collapse. Whole economies, tens, hundreds of millions of jobs depend on the tourism industry and the garment industry. And so I am not convinced that some munificent development agency, however well-intended, giving away the money or providing it in some other way would automatically result in a better outcome than those hundreds of millions of people having the dignity of work and being able to operate in an economy where there is the generation of wealth that can increasingly be shared. Now that gets to your second question, which is, is capitalism this inherently bad thing or capitalists inherently greedy, selfish characters out to exploit the least advantaged if they can for a buck? Well, I think it's first of all important to see that the founding fathers of modern capitalism, especially Adam Smith, wrote more important books like The Theory of Moral Sentiments, <laughs> where they understood we have obligations to others and that there's a, there are forms of social organization that allow businesses like the brewer and the baker to operate. And that doesn't just justify notions like taxation, it also justifies enabling certain kinds of businesses versus others. You may prefer to you know, incentivize renewable energy over tobacco distribution, for example, as a, as a government. It also makes it perfectly compatible for businesses to have social goals where the idea is to serve unmet needs. After all, some people could argue capitalism is just the manufacturing of random wants. But I think if you look at the history of capitalism, it's very easy to point to Armani, say. But a much more fundamental point is that in 1800, prior to the capitalist and scientific revolutions, the average life expectancy in this world was 29. There was no country in which people lived on average beyond 40. And a huge chunk of that was because of a very high child mortality. So let's not underestimate the sheer levels of tragedy that operated prior to the capitalist and scientific revolutions. Capitalism has been an enormous boon to the world where it has doubled that life expectancy and, and more in some societies. And it has reduced the levels of mortality and morbidity in a way that was historically unimaginable. Now, has it resulted in severe and unequal distribution of wealth? Does a lot of work need to be done? Well, that's what I'm all about in my work and life. But I think to dismiss capitalism, to dismiss this enormous force for generating and distributing wealth and creating jobs and dignity for people and meeting needs it seems to me to be a, a, a profound historical error. So it seems like a lot of the thinking behind people who object to capitalism and specifically object to capitalists making money off the poor is this idea that they're making it off of them. In other words, it's a zero sum game. So there's only so much money to be had and if you're making money, 
with the poor as as the people purchasing your products, well, then you are removing money from them. You are making them worse off and you as the wealthy capitalist are better off. I think that's the underlying thought process. That's right. And that's where the deepest error lies insofar as capitalism has been an enormous generator of wealth. And it must be said that many of the poor people in the world live today at a level that even kings and queens would not have been able to manage in the 1700s, right? So people may have mobile phones where they can access engagement with the economy and with others. They may have running water. They may be able to access certain kinds of medication and public hospitals that have certain forms of scientific advance that didn't exist. So it's worth saying that even if you take the view of the bottom 4 billion, that there has been a significant improvement on the whole due to capitalism and the scientific revolution. Now, that's not to say that Adam Smith isn't right uh, originally, that it can be harder to be poor in a rich society than in a poor society. Namely, people can be shut out. If you don't have a shirt, you can't go for an interview in the US, you can in Bangladesh. So there are cases where that's not the case, but on the whole, there's been huge benefit. The idea that you make money off the poor, you're right to say is a... It's a possibility. Poor people can be exploited. But fundamentally, we have this idea at LeapFrog, and our big mantra is profit with purpose. And where profit meets purpose is at the customer. If you think about it, if our goal is to back companies that then serve relatively low-income people with essential services, basic healthcare, medication that isn't fake or placebo or misprescribed, savings that don't disappear because the institution is reliable, microinsurance, as we discussed. So each customer that chooses to buy those products or services is a low-income person with agency getting something essential that helps them and their families or their business. Each person is also someone contributing to the revenue line. So LeapFrog thinks about it as why not serve 10 million people with a $1 insurance policy that helps their family go to the hospital if they need to, than one rich person with a $10 million policy. <laughs> uh, and we actually think that's a superior business model because the law of large numbers is what's behind the whole insurance industry. It's what actuaries love. The more people you're serving, the more predictable the pool is versus that one person. If you look at 10 million, I can start giving you some hardcore numbers that tell you how to price this and think about this and how this will evolve. So I think it's important to see that profit meets purpose at the customer. And then the question is not is the capitalist making money? Because of course, if they're making money for their investors and then investors are putting in much more money to serve many more poor people, that's a great thing. The question's not, is the capitalist making money? The question is, is the customer being treated fairly? Are they choosing to buy this thing and is it of value to them? And there we've developed whole metric systems, which I can talk to you about, about whether the product or service is quality, relevant and affordable. And all of those are things that you can track 
very quantitatively as well as qualitatively to make sure the customer's having the best experience. Let's do a quick thought experiment. If I said a company can serve 100 million low-income people with basic health care and make a dollar in each case, so the capitalist makes $100 million, or it could serve a million people and make a dollar. So the capitalist makes $10 million. Which would you favor? Well, whether you're all about the money or you're all about the purpose, the answer is clearly the 100 million people, as long as those people are being served well. And the thought experiment breaks down in the sense that once you're serving 100 million people, you can probably offer it to them at 80 cents or 70 cents a month. So you can, while preserving your margin, because you get such economies of scale. So it's actually all the more rational to endorse going big and reaching very large numbers and the capitalist making more money, as it were. The objection is going to be, hold on, if you can serve it at $1 per customer, $1 profit per customer, and you could drop it to 80 cents, couldn't you drop it to 40 and to 30 and to 20? Couldn't you drop it to just above the amount that you need in order to, to make it viable? And wouldn't you be obligated to do so? The flaw in the objection is that it doesn't take into account time and that this is an iterative game. If we were in front of the puddle, Peter Singer's puddle, with the child in it, it would be one thing. But we are operating in large societies that have long time frames. So if we turned it into a nonprofit, that company would not be able to grow because it wouldn't be getting in the resources, it wouldn't be making the returns or making the profit that allowed it to reinvest and grow and serve more people. And I know this because I've backed various social entrepreneurs and it's very tough in the charity markets to grow. It wouldn't be able to go into adjacent areas. So start providing more savings to those people so that they can send their kids to school and afford to do so. It wouldn't be able to allow them to go to attract new talent because it wouldn't be able to pay people more over time and they'd hemorrhage talent. So you would arguably end up with less innovation and less quality products in the end, serving fewer people. So what is remarkable about a capitalist engine that is a company when it is a purpose-driven company is you get this virtuous cycle of serving more and more customers better and better over time, therefore being able to attract better talent and more capital, and therefore being able to scale into more and more adjacencies. And I'll give you an example. So when I was MD at Ashoka, which is a, so an organization that has backed thousands of social entrepreneurs, we spent a long time trying to get a small health insurer in India to serve about 50,000 people. And that's because in India, it's a massive problem. Like 3% of India falls into poverty each year because of health events. That's more people than there are Australians or close to as many as there are South Africans, right? Every single year. Does serving 50,000 people matter? Absolutely. Is it going to address that problem for over a billion people? No. 
Well, we one of the early investments we made is into the Mahindra insurance brokerage. So Mahindra is like one of the biggest brands in India. It's where people buy their tractor or their fridge. It's one of the two great business houses along with Tata. And Mahindra serves millions and millions of people, especially across rural India. It started out serving people with tractors in rural India. So it serves pretty low income and excluded people, to be clear. And we built that brokerage into the third largest in India that serves 8 million people directly. And as a result, you know, tens of millions of people, their families are covered. And then we introduced a health insurance product so that if those families need to go to the hospital, typically they can. And that was taken up because it has this vast distribution as a company. And instead of 50,000 people, within two or three years, they'd reached 2 million people. And it's hyperscalable. It could reach many, many millions of people. And it became something that others in the market wanted to emulate. The wonderful thing about capitalism is that if people see a gap, they'll go for it. So I do think if you look at these mechanisms, they're just vastly more scalable than pulling the child out of the puddle one by one, or than a sort of nonprofit. Now, I just do want to talk about the long term briefly, which is to say, yes, you can um, always move the price of a product down by 5%. And the, the, the customer gets a lower cost product and gets the same benefits. But the company is going to be less sustainable. You're going to be able to make less profit for the investors. And ultimately, it's a, probably a quite short-termist view. The flip side also works. You can always add 5 or 10 cents to what you charge the customer and make more profit off of that customer. But in the end, they're going to have a less quality experience. You're going to be able to serve fewer customers and you're going to be able have greater marketing costs because the word of mouth won't work as well and so on. So when you view it over the medium to long term, companies tend to find a rational point for profit with purpose. There's a company in South Africa called All Life. Now, it used to be the case in South Africa that people who had HIV were basically uninsurable, that if you wanted life insurance, there was no way to get it. And All Life said, we're only going to insure people with HIV. But there's a catch. You have to take antiretroviral drugs. And so suddenly you had people who'd basically given up on life, who saw HIV AIDS as a death sentence, saying, well, I should get life insurance. And so they would get the life insurance, but then they would also lead a healthy life because they were taking this, this miraculous drug. And you had this alignment of incentives where you had the insurer wants you to live. They don't want you to die because they don't want to pay your family and you want to live and you want to be able to be healthy enough to work. It really is a case of everybody wins. And what you had is that this is done by private industry. I mean, one of the things that's interesting that you've talked about is that there's these three different sectors that could be playing a role in alleviating suffering. And when you ask most people, they think, well, it must be charities or it must be the state. And you're saying, well, actually you can do it with private businesses and you've got all these people who might have a, a totally self-interested thing. They say, I don't care about poor people at all. I just care about the fact that you give me 27.5% a year uh, in, in profits and that beats the hell out of me investing in rich people living in London. So great. And it turns out that the consequences are absolutely fantastic for the poor. 
I wonder if there's this problem where we venerate people's intentions. So the do-gooder says, I'm going to work at the charity and it's going to be so wonderful and I'm going to help all these babies. And, you know, I, I helped five this year. You say, oh, that's a wonderful intention, but really the impact was quite minimal in comparison to the enormous amount of impact that this gigantic economy can have. Jason's a, a consequentialist, so he really thinks that the right thing to do is maximize the good. But I wonder if part of our problem is that we fetishize the process, either it being done by the state or being done by these do-gooder charities. I feel torn at these moments because on the one hand, I think we do fetishize the self-sacrificing Mother Teresa model very strongly, and there is can be real error in that. On the other hand, I hugely admire people who will operate at the front line. And I'm not sure I could be a nurse or a teacher or a development worker in the trenches every day and remain motivated or live with that level of self-sacrifice or for that matter, sacrifice more importantly for my children and family. So I, I really wouldn't want to poo-poo self-sacrifice or the, the, the people at the front line, because in some ways, what they do is harder than what I do. At the same time, I think we have to recognize that insofar as we are trying to solve massive social problems that afflict billions of people, the capital markets and business are the most scalable, sustainable, and effective way to do that. And frankly, I have presidents and CEOs of some of the largest foundations on earth saying to me, we, all we can be is a catalyst. How do we help you and other people in business and investment to do more? Because clearly nine or $30 billion is just not that much when you're talking about the range of challenges and the number of people we're talking about reaching. I also am part of the G7 impact task force. And that is at the highest level government thinking about how they can create an enabling environment for impact investors to let the trillions flow through. And I think the idea of capitalism, that there is the self-reinforcing positive cycle of value creation, should not make this surprising. And it goes back to your point that, that wherever you are on the ideological spectrum, what I love about commercial impact investing and purpose-driven business is you can endorse this. If you are on the quite far left and what you want to see is low-income people who are able to work and strive and be the agents of their own destiny and not dependent on others, you can really back this. If you are pretty far to the right and say, people have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? The no handouts here, you can really endorse this. So it's a very broad umbrella. If, you know, we've had people say, I back leapfrog uh, investments because it's a great strategy for making more money. I think this is better than oil wells. And we've had people back it because they're leading foundations that say this is the best way to serve the poor and the most vulnerable in the world. So I'm 
I love the broad umbrella and I love that this is where some of the ideological debates break down, but people do have a very hard time shifting this sort of Miltonian or sacrificial paradigm. Miltonian being, it's only about the shareholders. You, you've got to be, you know, a ruthless capitalist to exploits to, to move forward and the state can regulate and the self-sacrificial paradigm being what we've discussed, you know, only noble intentions work to really change the world. It's clear to me that it's all about the and, profit and purpose, money and meaning. And I think that's what philosophy helped me to do, right? I didn't train in finance. I trained in philosophy. And I think it helped me to question these, you know, paradigms that had operated in capitalism and in international development that, you know, clearly break down once you interrogate them a little. A lot of what we talked about is this idea of alleviating poverty, but what you hear a lot of people complaining about is inequality. People are horrified by the uber, uber wealthy, the idea that there's X number of people who have as much as the bottom 50% of the world, and that upsets them in some sort of deep way. And I wonder, should we care about inequality or or can we put that question aside and care about poverty alleviation? Are the two linked? Should we be saying if we have high levels of inequality, but that's going to lead to everyone else doing very well, we can accept it, or we have to eradicate uh, all forms of inequality, even if it means that everyone's going to be a lot worse off? If you think about Rawlsian principles like Maxim and John Rawls's idea that inequalities are justified to the extent they help the least advantaged, those kinds of principles, they may break down at a certain point, but are, are very helpful in this regard. So the fact that we invest as LeapFrog in a pharmacy group in Kenya that makes people lots of money, I'm pretty comfortable with that if it's going to result in children and parents and grandparents getting the right medication, whereas on average in Kenya, 30% of medications of fake placebo misprescribed. I'm super comfortable with making them even more money by the fact that we've introduced telemedicine and pathology labs and nutritionists to turn those good life pharmacies into health hubs. And I'm even more comfortable with the fact that they're making even more money out of the fact that we've now scaled that to be the biggest health provi healthcare provider in East Africa. And when I make them even more money by taking that and turning it from 70 stores and health hubs into 250, I'm going to be even happier, right? So clearly, in this virtuous cycle case, you're going to be absolutely thrilled when profit meets purpose if you're making people a ton of money. And if my investors then put more money into my future funds that allows me to go out and find other good lives in places like Vietnam or Indonesia or Nigeria, that's even better. So I'm comfortable with that. Where I think the maximum principle breaks down is that I think there should be, I think there, there are two or three areas. One is there should be a special weighting on those who are broadly um, low income and not satisfying their basic needs or meeting basic capabilities. And that isn't just about the one least advantaged person, because whether you're a consequentialist or a deontologist or something else, you can draw up all sorts of crazy thought experiments about that one very low income person, right? And so I think we need to think about the bottom billion and then the next three billion. I do think even there, there's an argument that if 
capitalism and businesses are addressing the 3.5 billion of the lowest income that frees up charitable institutions and governments to focus on the bottom half a billion who are truly so poor that they cannot afford anything because they have no income, right? So I think there's even an argument there. But I think we need to create a weighting that is around thinking not just about that absolutely lowest income person, and sometimes this captures the imagination, but about all those people who are living on not just under $1, but under 2 under 5 and under $10 a day, who could rise into security and prosperity and, and the positive cycles that could create. The, the second point, I think, where the, the maximum principle kind of breaks down is that th there's a question about how you're advantaging those least advantaged people. And, you know, by them having a hairbrush, great. By them getting basic medication or being able to get to the hospital is a whole different story. And as we talk, you spoke about deep impact, as we talk about what LeapFrog authentically does, we really focus on some of those more fundamental services and products that are provided. So we've got to think a little bit about how those people are advantaged and are those addressing basic needs. A final way, I think, in which it breaks down, and this is where I think Rawls and several others fall into the same trap about timeframes and systems that even Peter Singer falls into, although Rawls is much better in this regard, is that inequality over time can drive severe distortions in systems such that they don't sustainably produce the kinds of outcomes you're looking for. And so where you get a level of inequality, where there is a certain level of state capture, dare I say that word, but a, conceived very broadly as elites managing to systematically tilt the playing field in their direction so that they accumulate yet more billions and in fact away from low-income people. There you don't have a sustainable mechanism to produce the, a better situation for the least advantaged. So you need to understand the principle over time. And I think that principle of say maximum or similar principles over time allows you to put constraints on the sort of inequalities that you will tolerate and allows you to think differently about areas, including taxation and shareholder rights and the, the, the rights of labor. So yeah, those would be areas where I think much more thinking needs to be done. So this notion of constraints is very interesting to me. One argument is that Okay, let's accept that capitalism is the way to uplift the poorest of the poor in the short term. Let's accept that if we allow microinsurance companies and deep impact organizations to enter that, that poor market and uplift them in a way that benefits those companies, that will have positive consequences all around. But in the end, what we want to do is eat the rich. So in the end, what we want is once we've uplifted those poorest of the poor, we then want to liquefy those rich. We want to eat their assets, pump them into, you know, through taxes into the economy, severely limit their wealth. And now you've got what you want. You've reduced inequality because you've uplifted the poor. You've brought down the wealthy. And now you've got the system you want. Yeah. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we got to the point where we could have that practical debate? You know, I studied under Marty Sen and Baroness Honora O'Neill, who is herself perhaps the greatest living Kantian or deontological philosopher, who emphasized the, the notion of 
who must do what for whom. <laughs> that where there is a need, there is a, or a right, you need to specify countervailing agents of obligation to deliver on that right. Otherwise, it's just like saying, I have a right or a need to jump 50 feet in the air. <laughs> no one can secure that for you, nor do you have the capability. The way I think about this really is grounded in, in that sort of thinking, namely, how do we think about the obligations we have to other, where we have, first of all, where there is enormous wealth and where you have the capacity to do a great deal. And I am a fan of thinking people have an obligation to give significantly to charity, however you construe that. I am a fan of taxation as a mechanism because I do think redistribution to a significant extent is beneficial. We can discuss where that's set, whether that's at 10 or 50 or 90% of people's income or assets or whatever it is, and how those settings change over time. And I think what you're pointing to is that over time, if it could go both ways. In other words, if, for instance, all people currently low income reached middle class security and prosperity, would you have an objection to billionaires spending their time working out how we all get into space? You, you might not, right? Because you think everybody else is living a great life. <laughs> this person made, maybe they made their billions by helping <laughs> millions and millions of people to rise out of poverty into the middle class. Let them chase space. Great, it's cool for the rest of us. So it might go that way, where you actually tax them less. <laughs> or it might go the other way, where you think, well, you have no justification anymore for there being such excessive wealth. <laughs> Let's help all these low middle income people move into more upper income by, by redistributing this wealth. <laughs> it would be a great situation to, to get into. <laughs> What I think we can say is that for the foreseeable future, for the next generation at least, the journey to getting 4 billion people from low income into middle income is going to require that we adopt uh, capitalist means. It's going to make you know, generating billions and millions for wealthy people permissible or indeed encouraged insofar as it's focused on companies that serve <laughs> real needs and reduce inequality as well to some extent. So I think we need to focus much more on the problem of how do we pivot the trillions in the capital markets from investing in things like extractive industry and bad, you know, and sin stocks, let's call it, <laughs> towards companies that serve fundamental human needs and build capabilities. And that is the big question I ask. And I spend time thinking about profit with purpose as a superior investment strategy. In other words, can I show that this is an area where you can get outperformance and reduced risk because you are serving such an intense need in such a large population versus investing in that, all that bad stuff or something that's just relatively morally neutral? That's very interesting because surely that's a contingent outcome. So it may be the case in this situation that investing in millions of poor people in a way that uplifts them, but still makes you money is a better investment than investing in sin investments, like extracting oil from the ground or whatever it is, or 
or finding the new sugar molecule that's even more addictive than previous sugar molecules or whatever it is. But over time, that could change. You might find some sin investment that's even more profitable. And then, you know, if you're operating on purely capitalist grounds, there's no reason why you shouldn't just dump all of your investing resources into that, you know, that sin sin investment. Yeah. And I think this is where Marx's notion of philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point, however, is to change it really comes to the fore. In other words, I think there is a practical moral obligation on those of us who can, including me, to generate vehicles and ways for people to invest that make those other opportunities less appealing in relative terms. This is not something that is just given from the heavens. (laughs) This is something that is hard won. You know, I've built a company that has over 15 years that has launched four fund vehicles that work to achieve top tier returns for investors by investing in micro insurance companies and pharmacies and and other areas, remittances (laughs) for migrants, and tries to generate and demonstrate returns that are risk adjusted for those individuals who have to sit in a fiduciary chair and make a decision. What's interesting here is this notion of what ought fiduciaries, people who are managing other people's money, to invest in. And I think there's a whole lot that could be said about this from a moral philosopher's standpoint. Namely, do you take a view that it doesn't matter what world these people retire into? If I'm someone in a pensions business, and most of the world's capital is held by pensions companies or insurers that manage people's money for the very long term. If I am a pensions business, do I just invest in whatever without any care for what world people retire into? Or do I actually say I'm not going to invest in stocks that produce cancer in the end and deforestation and areas where people will retire into an awful world. In other words, do I take a more universal ownership notion that constrains what I am allowed to invest in? And many institutions and many governments have taken the view that those who are making the investment decisions are entitled to take into account those long-term consequences. Do I take into account the implications for other stakeholders, uh, the employees, for example, or the community? And there's fierce debate about whether that is permissible, or should I just consider the shareholder perspective? And again, I think this comes back to I'm comfortable with the notion that business is a social institution that has a certain social license to operate, and that creating certain constraints where the businesses are not doing harm, and that includes investment businesses actively, is perfectly permissible. It's even permissible to create incentives for those companies to do good, tax incentives, for example. All of that, I think, is important. I think there's also the notion that creativity is required, and this is what I've been trying to do as a practical philosopher for 15 years, to create areas where it's not just no trade-off between profit and purpose, but it's a synergy between profit and purpose where each enhances the other. And that's where the trillions can really flow in and where you can really tilt whole economies and countries and industries. And that's why I'm so obsessed with that area. But it's quite a complex thing as you think about it over time. 
times and across what's permissible versus what's encouraged versus what is actually an obligation. And ultimately, my hope is that it becomes an obligation of fiduciaries to invest in purpose-driven investors and companies, because that's what tilts the entire economic landscape. So you described yourself as a practical philosopher. Can you tell us a bit about the sorts of things that you were studying while you were at Cambridge or at the University of Weisschrandt, uh, how that shaped your worldview and ultimately why you felt that leaving academia was the right thing to do? I'm very much a product of South Africa. I was standing on the union building lawns 20 something years ago when Madiba was inaugurated. And I felt that sensation as the planes flew over, trailing the new colors of the South African flag. And that boom went off that, you know, 50,000 of us hit the ground because we thought, wait a minute, someone's attacking us. The military has not been controlled by broad civilian democracy. And then it was that they were saluting Nelson Mandela. And I thought, wow, you can change the world and you need to do this profoundly. And so I'm very much a product of that South African experience. And I set out to really work on both democracy and poverty relief in philosophy. So my books are called uh, Democracy Beyond Borders is the one and the other is Global Responsibilities, Who Must Deliver on Human Rights. So I was preoccupied with those practical outcomes all along. What I would say is I was very influenced by the thinking of people like Honora O'Neill and Amartya Sen and my, my teachers at Wits and at Harvard in terms of thinking about the agency of different players. So not only the agency of low-income people and what sort of basic needs they themselves were willing and needed to fulfill, but the agency of different institutions, thinking beyond governments, don't worry, government will do it, is somehow the rallying cry, even of libertarians at times, because they think, you know, just leave business to do its own thing. And so the notion government will do it, or the notion profits will do it, or multilaterals or bilateral agencies will do it, was something that I was always, as a philosopher, quite confused about when I saw that you know, over 50% of the largest economic entities in the world are businesses. <laughs> and much of the capital that drives anything sits in capital markets. So philosophy really drove me to think about agency very, very differently. As I tried to work in nonprofits, in think tanks, and this was all done on the side while I was also doing philosophy, you know, as a visiting scholar at Columbia as well as Harvard, um, I, I became increasingly frustrated with the lack of scalability of some of the interventions and that people weren't listening. So I had to do it myself in some sense. And I became um, frustrated with the notion that somehow there was this division of labor where philosophers would talk, others would go and pick it up, the state would prescribe, and then, you know, people in the economy or in the social institutions would then go and act on that basis. That's really not how it works. <laughs> it's a much more complex mishmash of agency we have in our world. And I think ideas come from the people working on the ground, as well as from the philosophers. <laughs> and I think action can come from the philosophers as well as the people working on the ground. So I, I just wanted a more complex picture. The other thing that I really picked up from philosophy is 
you know, interrogating the basic assumptions that people take for granted. People thought there was profit and there was purpose and these two things should be kept apart. You either were a non Mother Teresa nonprofit type or you were a greedy capitalist. And, you know, we have a system that allows for each of you to find your way. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. I want money and I want meaning. And I meet so many people who want to have an impact on their community and make a difference. And they want to generate, you know, insufficient assets for their families to do certain things. And they want to have, you know, nice clothes and holidays. And I thought, well, wait a minute, like, let, let's think about that. That seems not unreasonable. Um, and what's broken down here in our conceptual systems? And that's what really allowed me to attack the kind of Miltonian paradigm, but also the sort of do-gooder, well-intentioned development paradigm. So both the more capitalist and the more socialist or social development perspective. A final thing I'd say is I also was skeptical of areas of philosophy. I mean, I read that wonderful introduction to philosophy by A.J. Eyre, and he, you get to the end, and he sort of throws up his hands and says, have we answered any of the questions? No, but boy, we ask them better. And I think we thought, wow, that's inspiring. What a thing to commit your life to just asking the questions better. You know, it's like it's it's Rilke's line of live the questions now and eventually you'll live your way to the answer. You know, there's so many ways to make this really inspiring. But then, you know, you walk out of your ivory tower into Johannesburg or for that matter, parts of London or New York or Sydney, and you see poverty surrounding you and you see people living in a fundamentally different way. And you think, well, hang on a second, like, it's really great to ask the questions, but I've got to be, you know, also be a practical philosopher. And I've got to think about how I can contribute to ending these massive problems. There were many ways in which philosophy satisfied me, but there were other ways in which I wanted to get out and do this, these things. And in the end, you know, I found think tanks powerful, I found nonprofits powerful, I'm a real fan of a lot of these sectors and industries, but I felt like business and investment was the place to go to have a scalable impact on the world. And in the end, LeapFrog has committed itself, and I've stood up and committed to reaching a billion people who are low income by the end of this decade with essential services to enable them to lift themselves uh, into security and prosperity. And hopefully we, ins we are inspiring and working with an industry that reaches the full 4 billion low-income people. And that would be a very different world within uh, a decade. So trying to fulfill that ultimate purpose of philosophers changing the world. And I thought I was really weird, by the way, and I still think that, but, but in, in a particular respect, which is that I thought, you know, I didn't train in finance. How can I end up running a multi-billion dollar private equity firm? And I was always a little bit embarrassed about the fact that I hadn't trained in finance and accounting. And then I discovered that the founders of private equity <laughs> had studied philosophy. George Soros, Paul Tierney, Ronald Cohen. <laughs> Um, these three had actually studied philosophy, not finance. And they had then been willing to go and question the assumptions about how you make investments and what businesses work in a way that others weren't willing to question. And suddenly I felt very liberated. And I think when you look at it more and more, you see that people, the, the willingness to go and really interrogate others' assumptions can take you to practical places that are so fundamentally world-changing 
that, that they're inspiring. And for this reason, I often recommend philosophy over other areas for people to study when they're the next generation. But I also supported the establishment of, you know, networks around social entrepreneurship and social enterprise in universities, because I also think people can get exposure to how these sectors can come together and areas of work can come together to change the world. I think both have value. Well, Kaz, I want to say this has been just so much fun. It's, you know, we've been making Brain of Matt for over a year now. You've been someone we've been wanting to have on the show for a long time. We don't get to spend as much time together being, you know, in different parts of the world. But but really, it's just, it's an inspiration to see how you've done something so incredible to change so many people's lives and to do it in such a considered way to use these brilliant intellectual tools, but make sure that they matter to lead a life that is full of meaning that enriches other people's lives. It's a, it's a really wonderful thing. And, you know, I'm incredibly proud. And I know that Lolly would be very proud, Lolly being your father and my uncle, who also had a just an incredible impact on my life as a philosopher and on all of our lives. So I want to thank you again for joining us today. Thank you both so much. It's been wonderful to talk about this. And, and just being with you, Mark, has allowed me just to surface things that I'd uh, forgotten about or hadn't thought about because of who I'm talking to. So I hope that that sense of joy in this conversation came across.